Well, as we approach the Word of God this morning and turn our attention to what he said, we're, we're actually putting a pause on our series in First Peter, and we're going to be turning to the Gospel of Mark uh, for the next seven weeks. And, and before we get to Mark chapter 1, I want you to imagine a scenario. Uh, perhaps this happens to you this afternoon or, or tomorrow. I want you to imagine a, a non-Christian friend or neighbor that you know. So think of through the people that you know, which one of them, which of those do not know Jesus today. And I want you to think of a particular person, a particular face, someone that you know who is not today a Christian. And I want you to imagine that you, you go home and you are having lunch perhaps and, and you hear a knock at your door and it is this person, whoever's face you're imagining right now. They've, they've come to your door and, and they, they tell you, they say, listen, um, I've heard a little about Christianity and I, I observe that you uh, seem to follow Jesus. I, I see you uh, attend gatherings. I see you pray. I have heard you speak maybe of the Bible. And I want to know, what do I have to do to be a Christian? So, so that person that you know is asking you, what, what do I have to know? What do I have to do in order to be a Christian? And, and what would you answer them in that moment? What, what would you say? Uh, would, you, would you have something to say? Would you need to take a minute and just think, okay, wow, I didn't expect this. How would I answer this person? Well, maybe you, you would need a minute. And perhaps in that minute... Um, the, the words of the Apostle Paul might come to mind um, when he was asked uh, by a Philippian jailer, well, what must I do to be saved? And his response is in Acts 16.31. He says, well, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. You know, could, could you say that to your friend? This person who's come knocking at your door. Um, I mean, would that help them? Would, would they know what it means to believe? And, and would they know what they would need to be saved from, what it means to be saved? You see, I, I think these kinds of interactions can be really confusing. They can catch us off guard, which in, it, in itself is surprising, right? Because this person is essentially saying, what do you do to be a Christian? That, that's what I want to know. I want to know, how can I become a Christian? You've become a Christian. And so isn't it kind of strange that we might be flat-footed when, when people ask us this or inquire about our faith? Well, if you aren't sure, if you aren't exactly sure how to guide another person asking questions about Jesus and about Christianity, the next seven weeks as we move through the book of Mark are designed to help you. and They're designed to help us. For the next seven weeks, we're going to be walking through the book of Mark with an eye to how Mark equips us for these kinds of conversations. How does Mark help us know what to say to the unbelieving world, whether they ask or not? Most weeks in the series, we're going to cover uh, multiple chapters of Mark. We'll, we'll take two or three chapters and really focus in on a few verses. Um, but this morning, we're going to focus on one verse. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. That's all we're going to cover in the book of Mark. So Kathy's going to come in just a moment, and she's going to read Mark 1, 1 to kind of set the stage 
for what we're going to look at today. And then Chuck uh, will come and read Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. This is the, the Great Commission, Jesus' parting command to his disciples before he ascended. Uh, Bridget is then going to come and read John 3, verses 16 to 21, and they tell us why Jesus came and what hangs in the balance as people decide whether to follow him on the one hand or reject him on the other hand. And then lastly, Abby's going to come and read from Romans 10, uh, verses 12 through 17, which explains how God intends for people to hear about Jesus. And so our aim this morning really is twofold. If you think about that interaction, that hypothetical interaction we just talked about, our aim this morning is twofold. We want to get increased clarity on what the gospel message is for that person. And then secondly, we're, we're looking for what should motivate us to actually speak in that moment. What should motivate us to speak that gospel once we have clarity about it. And so, uh, Kathy, why don't you come and begin reading from for us Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark 1, 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. John three sixteen through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Romans chapter 10, verses 12 through 17. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Well, when we read passages like these, we are reading about matters of great importance, are we not? Mark chapter 1, verse 1 is a single sentence introduction for all that Mark will write. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
We need clarity on what is it that Mark is talking about. What, what is this gospel? And if you've been around the church, perhaps you know that, well, gospel is an old English word that, um, though we don't use it outside of religious context normally, it means good news. And so a gospel, what, what Mark is, is proclaiming through his writings, a gospel is a joyful proclamation, a, a happy announcement. And so, for instance, on uh, July 20th, 2010, uh, Sarah and I became new parents for the first time, and um, we welcomed uh, our daughter Sadie into the world. And, and in a matter of speaking, there were a lot of gospel texts, gospel emails, gospel phone calls that were happening that day, right? Because we had good news that we wanted our friends and our family to know about. And so we, we told them, Sadie Olivia is here. Sorry to embarrass you, Sadie. And so, so Mark, when he's, when he, when we read these first words, we're supposed to have something like that, only bigger in mind when we read the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is, this is something great and good news worth sharing. Um, magnificent events that Mark has beheld and is telling us. He has this monumental, happy announcement. And so what is it? This is what we want to get clarity about. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to Mark? Well, here in verse 1, again, Mark says it's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if we would continue to read uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 2, through the end of Mark 16, that phrase, Son of God, would be a pretty good description of what we see throughout all of those chapters. As, as Mark describes the life of Jesus of Nazareth, what we see is the Son of God come to earth. Now, how do we know that? Well, the, the way Mark is trying to impress that upon us is, is almost from the very beginning, Mark points out how Jesus, a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who walked the earth, exercises godlike authority wherever he goes. And so wherever this man goes, it seems like he, is, he has authority over illness and paralysis and birth defects and natural disasters and demonic evil. Jesus of Nazareth raises the dead. He feeds thousands of hungry people from nothing twice. He restores sight to the blind. And what is the commonality between all of these things, all these things that he does? What's the commonality? The commonality is that he does them through speaking. Where have we heard that before? How far in your Bible, if you start on page one, how far do you have to go before miraculous things start happening because God speaks? Page one, right? God, the creator, brings the cosmos into being by speaking. And so if the Son of God were to come to earth, wouldn't we expect him to do something similar? Wouldn't we expect the divine power to be known through words? Whether that's get up, take up your bed and walk. Whether that's um, 
proclaiming sight to the blind, health over the ill, life to the dead. To Mark, the news worth sharing is that Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth. So Mark is not being sneaky about his main point, is he? He's plainly telling us right up front, verse 1, this is what I want you to hear. And then he demonstrates it with 16 chapters that follow this good news. The Son of God came. He's been among us. And and this Son of God came to primarily lift up the broken, to heal the hurting, to forgive sinners, to provide for the needy. Like all the gospel writers, Mark is highlighting over and over and over again how Jesus serves and blesses those who cannot pay him back. It's just who he is. He is constantly attending to those who would just have no right or claim to him. I mean, if he is the king of the universe, what claim does a tax collector or a prostitute have upon him? And yet those are the people he goes to. The very people who are forgotten, looked over, ostracized, just seem to have his fixed attention, his constant gaze. Now, if you have ever been forgotten or looked over or ostracized, or if you have ever felt broken or hurt or sinful or needy, then isn't this good news? That these kinds of people, people like you and me, have the attention and compassion of the very Son of God. That that Jesus, though he is ruling and reigning as the Son of God today, he loves, he loves people, not the people who impress him, (laughs) but the people who need him. That is good news. Now, let me give you a couple of concrete examples, because I don't want you to take my word for it. If you were to open up the book of Mark and just kind of skim its pages, let me give you a few examples. Here are three examples within the span of about 20 verses. So if you were to get to like the end of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, here are the kinds of things you would be reading. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will... You can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. Now, there are lots of angles that you can take with that text. You can talk about how leprosy cut people off from their families, from their community, and here Jesus is touching him. And that's happening. That's true. But do you, do you hear the heart of Christ that is expressed through these verses? He's coming. He's saying, I don't know if you will. Jesus, I don't know if you will even dare to give me your attention, let alone touch me. And what does the Savior say? He does not hesitate. He says, I will. I will. I will not move away from you. I will move toward you. That is the heart of the Savior on display. Mark 2, verse 5. Paralytic is let down through the roof because there's no way that his friends can get them in. And what does Jesus say? Before he says, get up and take up your bed and go home, he says, son, Your sins are forgiven. 
You see, it doesn't matter how you get to Jesus or what you think your greatest need is when you get to Jesus. He knows your greatest need and he's taking care of your greatest need before perhaps the need that you came to him to take care of. That is a good savior. Mark 2, verse 17. He becomes ridiculed because he pays attention to people like paralytics, like lepers, like sinners. He says these perhaps familiar words, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Do you want to know why I came? I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There it is. There's his heart. There's who has his gaze. Do you you hear it? The needy, the sinners, those who need him desperately. Jesus' astonishing combination of compassion and power is on display in every pages of Mark's writings up until the very end. They just build and build and build until chapter 15 and, and 16 where we find ourselves on the hill of Golgotha, Calvary, where this Son of God, pure, priceless, spotless as he is, is offering up his very life his blood so that those who had strayed from God rebelled against God and were at odds with God could be forgiven, reconciled. And then he rises from the tomb and proclaims and offers new life to all who trust him. That's the climax. That's where it's going. And that's what I want us to note from Mark chapter 1, verse 1. It is the end. It is the climax. It is where Mark concludes. It is not where he starts. Calvary comes 16 chapters later after the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, I want to draw attention to that because I think the clarity we get from that is really important. When we think of that non-Christian friend who perhaps comes to our door or perhaps is at the water cooler and spiritual matters may come up or you see an opportunity to talk to that person, what do you need to say in that moment? Where do you need to start with that person? You see, when I am speaking to a non-Christian friend, whether across the street, in the workplace, at the dinner table, I'm tempted to try to, in that moment, fabricate and, and instantly race to the cross. What, how can I tell them that, about their need for God, that by their sins they stand condemned against God, that they, they need this man to take their place on the cross, to die in their place, and 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 have faith in him and repent toward him. And all of that is true. All of that is right. But odds are, that's not the first conversation we're going to have with somebody, is it? That's not the first conversation Mark had. It's not where he started, chapter 1, verse 1. It's all great theology. It's all a place that we hope we get to with every non-Christian we speak to. But in Mark's mind, 
The cross is not the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is the end. The gospel begins simply by speaking of who Jesus is. And so if you're used to evangelistic strategies that center on how does a person get saved or what is the the kind of mechanical nature of the great exchange at the cross and you're frustrated because, man, that's just hard to get into. Yeah, no kidding. There's 15 chapters that come before that. (laughs) And so this clarification that comes to us from Mark chapter 1, verse 1, I think is so freeing because what Mark focuses on is not a substitutionary atonement. He's not focusing on the mechanism by which we need to get saved. He's focusing on the person we need to know in order to be saved. This is who he is. This is who he's attracted to. These are the kinds of things he said and did. And brothers and sisters, I'm just convinced from Mark that that's what our, the people in our circles need to hear. They need to hear that Jesus is kind, that he is loving, that he is good, that he is powerful, that he is holy, that there is no one better than this Lord. There is no one better than this Savior. Because it's only after they've, they've understood some of that that the cross actually makes sense, right? Okay, well, if he is powerful and if he is holy and if, if he did not go soft on sin, but yet he loved sinners, oh, now I see how he could offer up his life. Oh, now I see how that substitution could take place. Oh, now I see. Are you with me? Do you, do you follow what I'm getting at here? Mark did not feel a need in sharing the gospel to race to just doctrinal truth about the cross. He said, you got to hear something about Jesus of Nazareth. You got to get your mind and your heart around who this guy was. As I, as I think about this and as I think about, you, you know, how I want to be faithful to evangelism, it's really helpful to have this kind of clarity because it, it makes evangelism a lot simpler, right? It makes the starting point for sharing the gospel much easier. It is simply speaking about Jesus. That's where evangelism begins. You don't have to be like a chess master to see 30 moves down the line and see how the cross is going to connect with this person. We want to get there, right? And and if that opportunity presents itself, brother or sister, take it. But where we start especially in in our age where there is so uh, much confusion and uncertainty about who Jesus is, do you understand that your average uh, unbelieving neighbor or family member probably thinks that the Son of God is either a taskmaster or a myth? That's probably their conception of who the Son of God is. He either doesn't really exist Or he wants some sort of faith just to get something from them. And brother or sister, if you read the first 15 chapters of Mark, nothing is further from the truth. Jesus did not come here to get anything from anybody because he doesn't need anything. He came to demonstrate how much he has by overflowing in love, overflowing in compassion to the needy and the downcast. And so our aim 
in presenting Jesus to people is to present that overflowing goodness. That there is no one better to follow. There is no one better to need than Jesus of Nazareth. We don't omit the cross. Mark didn't omit the cross. But it may not be where we need to begin. Your your friend may need to hear 14 chapters about the compassion and love of Jesus before they're ready to hear about the climax, before they're ready to hear about the main point. It may sound overly simplistic, but I think when we look at the book of Mark, that's exactly what Mark is doing. Your evangelistic strategy, it doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. Just tell people about Jesus. Now, I said at the beginning, our, our goal today from, um, from Mark 1, 1, and this is where we're going to start to get into some of those other texts that we looked at, is not only to have clarity around the gospel and clarity around the evangelistic task, but also motivation to actually speak. Um, because don't you feel that that's where the battle is so often? I find that when opportunities uh, present themselves or when, I, when I'm with someone and I think, oh, I want to, to tell this person about the Lord. I want, I want to tell them about the God that they could know today in all of his goodness. Part of it is, okay, theologically, do I just understand enough truth about him? But most of us have probably been walking with the Lord enough to have enough truth in our heads. It's, it's then also a motivational question. Am I, am I bold enough? Am I convinced enough to move forward and actually speak. And so if we're going to speak of Jesus, if we're going to make him known, we need motivations to open up our mouths. And so that's where I want to spend the rest of our time. I want to begin in, in Matthew chapter 28. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to start there. And I want to, out of these other texts, highlight and observe six different motivations that I hope compel us to speak more of this Christ. The first three will come from Matthew chapter 28. So Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Look at verses 19 and 20. This is Jesus having having died at the cross, risen again, is about to ascend into heaven, and he says this to his disciples. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so the first motivation that we see in these verses to speak of Jesus is that Jesus commands us to speak of him. Does he not? Did you catch the command? Go therefore, baptize, teach. It's a command. Jesus is calling his followers to do this. Go make disciples. Now, with our Western sensitivities, uh, I don't know if if you feel motivated by commands. Um, If I were to be honest, most time I receive commands, I bristle a little bit. Well, why should I do that? Who are you to tell me to do that? You know, it's just our individualistic Western mindset, right? We, We bristle at commands. But remember who it is that is giving this command. 
It is Jesus himself. And so we just spoke about how unendingly good he is. He, he gave himself up for our redemption. He poured out himself as a ransom for many. He came for the broken and the sick and the hurting and the sinful. It is him who gives us this command. He is not here to order us around merely for his enjoyment. No, in John 15, verse 11, he says that the purpose behind all of his commands is to what? That my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. That is why he gives us his commands. In other words, obedience to Jesus yields joy in Jesus. Uh, just this morning, uh, when I woke up, I was reminded of, of Luke 10. Uh, in Luke 10, Jesus uh, brings together 72 of his followers, and he uh, commands them to go out to all the towns that he's going to go and to proclaim the gospel and to call for repentance, to, to evangelize, so to speak. And, and when they came back a few verses later, it is no surprise, perhaps, that we read, and the 72 returned with joy. With joy. So motivation one is that we should speak of Jesus because he commanded us to for our joy. For our joy. He commands us to speak of him. Motivation number two. Jesus empowers us to speak of him. We're still in Matthew 28. Look at verse 18, which comes right before the command. Verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now when we read that, we have to read verses 18 and 19 as tightly wound together. Um, they're separated by verse numbers, but, but Bible verses, they're not like fortune cookies, right? We, we can't just pull them apart and offer them in isolation as some um, tithing or saying. We can't separate them as if, well, cookie one says that Jesus has all authority, and then you open up cookie two, and it's like, you should tell others about Jesus. Uh, no, that's, that's not the way they work. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Go therefore. What is Jesus getting at? Well, he's saying, he's saying, listen, I now call all the shots in the universe. I have all authority. And because I call all the shots, go and make disciples. Do you hear what he's doing? He is pledging his universal authority to your disciple-making activity. His authority for your disciple-making activity. Go, therefore, and make disciples because I have all authority. I think this is why the Apostle Paul could write in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? Power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. When a Christian speaks of Jesus, they should expect, I think, based on Romans 1.16, to encounter the power of God. I am so tempted to think that talking about Jesus with someone simply won't have any power. Have you ever had that thought? 
The excuses are plentiful, aren't they? Maybe you've heard some of them. Well, so-and-so doesn't seem ready today. They probably won't believe it. I don't think it will make a difference. Lies. They are lies. Jesus is saying, Christian, do you want to see what real authority and power looks like? Speak of me. Tell people about me. Make disciples. Tell them everything I've commanded. Your words may feel feeble, but open your mouth and watch me work. Jesus empowers us to speak of him. You don't have to rely on your own power. You don't have to be wise with your words. You don't have to be, um, you know, have it all together and, and the perfect message come out. You just need to speak of him. That's what we need to do. And he will empower it in the moment. So Jesus commands us to speak of him. Jesus empowers us to speak of him. The third motivation, Jesus is present when we speak of him. So we've looked at the command in verse 19. We saw his authority in 18. Now let's see his presence in verse 20. Matthew 28, verse 20. He says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now it is true that Jesus never leaves us nor forsakes us. That wherever you are, if you are his, he is with you. He has indwelt you with his spirit. He is there. That is true. But based on this verse, it is also true that Jesus is never nearer to us than when we make him known. When I think back to the times I have felt the presence of God most powerfully, it is often during or after talking to someone about Jesus. Have you ever encountered that? I mean, it is a wonder that I still struggle with evangelism because those moments have been amazing. I, I remember um, there was a time where I just had had the honor to talk with a, a it was a coworker, uh, had some significant struggles in his life, and he was really searching for answers. And for a number of weeks, we happened to read through the Gospel of John. You can read through the Gospel of Mark. You can read through lots of books of the Bible with somebody to tell them about Jesus. And I just remember how many times I came home. We would do that at like 7.30. I'd work a full work day. And by the time I came home, when, when Sarah would ask, how was your day? I would just still be bubbling over with these conversations I had with Kyle. It was great. Like, can you, can you believe... Maybe he didn't even respond much that day. I was just so overjoyed to be faithful to my king, to, to put my reputation maybe on the line and, and speak of him. Have, have you experienced that kind of joy? Have you, have you talked to somebody else about the Lord and just be so filled with joy that he is your king? He is real today and you know it because as you spoke those words about him and exhorted someone else to consider him, it was like he was right there. I think that's what Jesus is getting at in verse 20. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. If you feel distant from the Lord, or if you want more of his presence, pray and look for opportunities to speak about him with those you know. He is present. He is with you, particularly, Christian, when you open your mouth, particularly when you bear witness about him. 
Okay, motivation four. Motivation four is a little different, and we'll turn to Romans 10. So if you want to flip a few pages over to Romans chapter 10. All are lost unless we speak of him. So Jesus commands us to speak of him. He empowers us to speak of him. He is present when we speak of him. And now maybe here's negative motivation. All are lost unless we speak of him. Now in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, we hear the Apostle Paul quote these words from the prophet Joel. So Joel lived about 600 years before Paul. And Paul is bringing these words to bear into his present time. This is Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So he's quoting from Joel chapter 2, verse 32. But now look down at verse 14 and listen to Paul's reaction or how Paul interprets the words of that prophecy from Joel. Verse 14. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You see, Paul is someone we want to emulate, don't we? But particularly in his evangelistic zeal, I mean, it just seems like wherever he was and whoever he was around, he was speaking to them about Jesus. He was talking about Jesus in the marketplace. He was talking about Jesus in the synagogue. Just whoever's ear he could bend, he was telling them about this Christ, this Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Why did he do that? Well, do you hear his motivation here? He says, well, if, if Christians do not speak of Jesus, humanity is lost. Our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members, all 7.8 billion people on planet Earth have only God's wrath to face unless they call upon the name of Jesus to save them. They are one call away from knowing God's love and salvation. And the God-appointed means for people to hear about this one that they are to call on is someone like you or me telling them words out of our mouth about him. Doesn't that stoke our, our compassion toward the lost when we realize this? Again, picture the faces of people you know. If someone does not share with them who Jesus was and what Jesus has done, they have zero chance, according to Romans chapter 10, zero chance of escaping the coming judgment. And escaping the coming judgment, it doesn't take much because of what has already been accomplished. One call. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. One call. The good news about Jesus is the most urgent message to share because it is the only message that can give sinful people a good future. And if you yourself have experienced what it is like to move out of that hopeless, bleak kingdom of darkness and finally see his light for the first time, 
oh, brothers and sisters, how can we be silent? How can we not be about wanting to help everyone we can see that same light, experience that same freedom, speak of that same Savior? And so just like the, the power and the presence and the command of Jesus should motivate us, the lostness of the world should motivate us to speak of the Christ that was sent to them. There is no other way. They must hear of him. Fifth motivation. People are saved by hearing of him. And so here's the other side of the coin. We've been looking at Romans 10, 14. How are they to believe in in him of whom they have never heard? And Paul concludes that section in verse 17 by saying, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so take heart as, as the word of Christ is spoken and as people hear, some will believe. Now the question is, what will happen when they believe? What is the significance of believing? And here we turn to our last text, John Chapter 3, Bridget read this for us. John chapter 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes, mark that word, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And here that word comes up again. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so here we are face to face with a miracle. The words of commonplace, everyday Christians who speak about Jesus give unbelievers the opportunity to experience the full weight of God's love. The mechanism for someone experiencing the full weight of God's love involves words coming from Christians' mouth into the ears of unbelievers. And should God move, faith sparks, they believe, and the condemned are pardoned. It's miraculous. I mean, if you've ever thought, um, man, I wish I could have been at the parting of the Red Sea. Like, I just want to see the water stack up. People go across on dry ground. I mean, act of God. Well, I would submit to you that seeing a soul move from darkness to light is a much greater miracle. Those people who passed through the the Red Sea, who who walked and saw the, the, the waters on the other side, they still grumbled against God. They still sinned against God. Those same people made the golden calf and incurred God's wrath. So it is a much bigger miracle for you to sit down with someone across from your table Read scripture together or just say, you have to consider this savior. You have to believe what he's done for me. Can I tell you? And, and to watch things open up in their mind and heart. And they start to believe much bigger miracle than the parting of the Red Sea. And you're invited to see it. In speaking about Jesus, we invite all people to believe in Jesus. And if they believe, everything changes. Isn't that motivation 
for us to speak. All right, sixth motivation from these texts, and this will just be my closing point. God has appointed you, if you are a Christian, if you have been born again by the Spirit of God, placing your faith in Jesus Christ for forgiveness, God has appointed you to speak of him. And, and you might be saying, yeah, Nate, I kind of guessed that by now. I saw where you were going. Not a surprise. I just want to highlight that if you are a Christian in this room, you are a necessary part of God's plan to save the lost. You, you, you see, the Great Commission, it's not reserved for kind of the, the superhero Christians or the missionaries, those who would move halfway around the world, or pastors only. Every Christian is to speak of Jesus. I, I, was, I was thinking about this early this week, and, and I wanted to share this thought to you because it, it came to me, and I'm not sure I'd ever thought about this before. You know, we gather in this room every week, and we gather, and undoubtedly there are empty seats around us. What if, what if the only thing preventing these seats from being filled with brand new Christians. I'm, I'm not necessarily talking about the person who's been saved for 10 years looking for a new church. We, we want to serve that person. But I'm talking about brand new Christians, people who had no hope yesterday, and next week they're gathering with us because they're a child of God. That's who I'm talking about. What if the only thing practically preventing these seats from being filled with brand new Christ followers was us who know him speaking more freely about him. Now, I, I realize that's a little bit risky. It's a, it's a little bit risky for a few reasons. Um, the, the first is that you might be feeling like I'm trying to do a guilt trip. I'm, I'm not trying to do a guilt trip. Please, don't, don't feel guilty. Let's think about present and future. What if? The second way that that's risky is it could make it sound like evangelistic results depend on us. And I'm not saying that either. Here's what I'm saying. Could it be that God is so ready to bring the lost into his church that the biggest missing ingredient right now are people willing to do the sometimes hard, sometimes embarrassing work of telling others about Jesus. And when that happens, boom. God moves, people are saved. Could that be the time in which we live? Because I think if you read the New Testament, that's what we're supposed to come away with. I mean, on the one hand, it's, it's true that Pittsburgh, it's, it's a spiritually dry city. If you talk to church planters or those associated with domestic missions, Western Pennsylvania is known to be one of the spiritually hardest places in the United States right now. Some of that is, you know, the fallout that's, that comes from some bad religious history here. And, and that's kind of across the board, Catholics, Protestants. People think that they know what Jesus is about and they just don't have any clue. But I would submit to you that Pittsburgh is not as dry as first century Jerusalem. And it was there that Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but laborers are few. 
Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That's Luke chapter 10, verse 2. You see, church, perhaps we think, I think this way, I think a lot, Perhaps we think that the biggest obstacle to the people around us being saved is that there just isn't much of a harvest to be had. But Jesus thinks differently. He says that the biggest obstacle to people knowing him, being saved, brought into the church, brought into the kingdom, is a lack of laborers and a lack of prayer. Put differently, Jesus is saying that if his people pray and if we are willing laborers, we can expect a harvest. Doesn't mean that everyone you talk to will be saved. Doesn't mean that. But I think Jesus is inviting us to do just that, to pray and to labor, expecting a harvest. And so for the next seven weeks, We're going to hear more of the gospel according to Mark. We're going to hear more of who was this Jesus of Nazareth that Mark portrays. We're going to hear the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to hear the middle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to hear the end of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll go the whole way through the book. And here, from the outset, what what I want to ask us to do is would we pray? Pray that we would have gospel clarity. Pray that we would gladly labor in order to make Jesus known. Because in some sense, that's why we're here. If if God all of a sudden plucked all his people out of the earth, he would essentially be condemning the rest of the world. It is our words, our testimony, that give people the opportunity to hear about Jesus, that Uh, persuade him or beckon them to believe in the one who can save them. And it's okay if you were extra aware of your need for God's help. Uh, That's that's honestly where I find myself entering this series. Um, I was really excited to to preach preach through the book of Mark in this way and and help hold this before us, Uh, but it's not because I'm an all-star evangelist. It's because I really need help. I think Mark intends to help us. And so let's turn now to prayer, having heard Mark 1, chapter 1, and these other texts. Let's turn to prayer asking God to intercede in our world, asking him to move, confessing any sin that you're aware of in this moment because he loves to forgive and draw near to the broken. He loves to uh, provide for those who need him. And so let's go to him now. Lord Jesus, it is astounding at what you gave up for us. You you left all the riches of heaven. You left the presence of your Father. You left being worshipped by myriads and myriads of angels to come here to be poor and to help the needy, to save sinners. Lord, thank you for overflowing to us in such abundance. And it is your abundance and your provision that motivate us 
to, to obey your commands and to obey your commands to make disciples, to obey your commands to speak. And so as we pray to you now, would you overflow to us still? Fill us still, we pray, Lord.